Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's go over to uh, Michael Weiss. He is the founder and president of Yield Street. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here. It's it's Fed Day. Uh, you know, here at Bloomberg, we make a big, big deal about it because the markets really care. What are you thinking about? What do you expect to hear from this Fed? It's good to be back and good morning. I expect to see a little bit of the same when it comes to the Fed. I think the market continues to think that we have it all figured out and the Fed enjoys showing us that we don't. I expect us to see another rate hike. I think the markets are going to see a choppy day today. I think we're going to see some more volatility. I don't think the Fed is done yet. I think they have resilience that we have yet to experience. Well, they they sure better not be done because they have five and a quarter percent as the terminal rate on the dot plot. So if they finish at 475, that's a big miss. I could imagine, though, that they don't go much higher than five because I think they're a little more hawkish on the dot plot than they expect to be in real life. Plus, to be fair, a lot has changed, right, Michael? I mean, we've seen inflation come down pretty substantially. We are seeing inflation come down. We are seeing the the American consumer's pocket get thinner. We're seeing people pulling out. I believe we saw Vanguard. Uh, published a report that said that people are having hardship withdrawals out of their personal retirement accounts at a level that we haven't seen before. And so the consumer is different. Their ability to spend has dramatically decreased, and they don't have the same deposits they used to. By the way, how does that affect... How does that affect your investments at Yield Street? Because you have, I think, a very unique situation in that, um, if I understand it correctly, you're, you allow um, kind of retail investors to get in on something that until now had been really the revere of uh, institutional clients or the ultra wealthy, right? You, you let people into private credit. Correct. Yield Street has been making access to alternative investments available for retail investors and accredited investors. And what we have been a big proponent of is helping people build a better and more modern portfolio that includes private assets. So private credit, private equity, real estate, and a host of other investments that were usually and historically reserved for the ultra wealthy and the institutional investor. And had been incredibly popular. I mean, everybody Paul and I talked to in 2022 was like, man, uh, these markets are uh, are too crazy. We're going to run for the hills. The only thing we like is private credit. So how's that turning out? How's that look this year? It still continues to look really great. I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit about some of the challenges you could expect in private markets. But for the most part, the private markets are holding their own. And people continue to invest and we continue to see net inflows month over month. People want more stability. They want to get away from the volatility in the public markets. They trust the public markets less and it hasn't delivered the returns for them that they wanted or the stability. 
Whereas in the private markets, for example, in private credit or in real estate debt, you are often able to invest in a SOFR-based or in a floater. I know that's a trigger word for you. Last time, I think you pulled the Caddyshack reference. (laughs) But um, if if you're invested in a floating rate product, then you're going to continue to earn more as the Fed increases the rate. And so for the most part, the alternative investment landscape has held its own and people continue to invest. More nuanced, where you're seeing a shift over the last 12 months, is historically people were really excited over the last number of years about private equity, about venture, about big growth opportunities. So think of longer duration and limited cash flow, but a bigger return in the future. Over the last number of months, investors have shifted that appetite into shorter duration, cash-flowing assets, more credit-based, less long-term equity. And they're able to, to still um, access those investments through our platform. And so we've shifted some of the demand as to where we're investing more heavily to cater to what people really want. Hey, Matt, you know, to the extent we do get a recession in, in the 2023, early 24. How concerned are you about the, the private credit business as you think about credit quality? How does that change maybe how uh, you think about that business? I'm very bullish on the private credit business. As it relates to credit quality, obviously, that's much more specific to the strategy within private credit. We've mostly been focused on senior secured or on bridge lending. Um, that's mezzanine, but on a lower loan-to-value basis. So when you look at our portfolio or when you look at the partner's that we do business with, we feel really good about it. I think where the recession starts to hit um, in a more impactful way, some of the private investments, or for example, think of real estate equity. So a lot of the investments, the have senior debt that could be on a floating rate. And so for folks that don't have rate caps, that becomes a real issue because their cost of debt just skyrocketed. Our portfolio has rate caps, but they're going to roll in 24 or late 23, early 24, and 25. Right. And so if you look at the forward curve today, you feel comfortable saying, hey, by that time, you're going to be in a better place and you'll be fine. But people who are dealing with expiring rate caps now yep. are going to have a lot of trouble because the cost of that debt is going to be way too expensive. Right. All right, Michael, great stuff. Always appreciate checking in with you. Michael Weiss, uh, founder and president of Yield Street, talking about the credit markets. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Lots of eco data, lots of earnings, but also uh, geopolitical issues out there for the markets to take into account. So let's bring on Angela Stent. She's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. And Angela, before we get to kind of Russia, Ukraine, and what that means for just geopolitical tensions, you know, kind of the story that's just kind of hitting the tape right now is the, uh, the Justice Department at uh, President Biden's home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, looking for more documents. What's going on with these documents for a lot of these uh, senior level folks? Well, I think it shows that we need a better system when people leave office. And I guess uh, it's the last days and everyone's hurrying around and packing things up. Uh, they clearly mistakes were made. Uh, so I think as a result of all of this, and I guess uh, they've now asked the Justice Department has asked the, you know, all of the former presidents and vice presidents to make sure that they don't have classified documents, that they'll have to have a better way of dealing with it, um, because clearly the system hasn't worked. How is the system working now? I mean, the first documents were found November 2nd, just before an election. Fortunately for the Democrats, they didn't tell anybody until after the midterms. Um, But it's been quite a while. They're just searching his beach house now. Why? Well, I guess, you know, it it takes time for them, you know, their procedures to, uh, uh, you know, to to get to all the different places. They had where, meetings. Uh, the, they yeah, had the a dinner. Pre- you know, where the president's... Life yeah, happens. I mean, yeah. <laughs> they were scheduled. So, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, everything's, you know, it, it, it takes time. But clearly, as I said, the system isn't working properly and we need a better system. It's been three months, by the way. Yeah, so... Uh, three months. It's, I think, I don't know what's going on there. I guess right. government is busy. Busy, busy. Angela, let's switch gears and get to the, 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 the big issue that we want to discuss with you. It's just kind of Ukraine and Russia. Can you give us your thoughts? I mean, we're a year into this, so much suffering uh, by the folks of Ukraine. Can you tell us kind of where we are and, and how this might play out? So we're really, I would say at the moment, in a stalemate. Uh, the Ukrainians had made some gains in September and October. Uh, the Russians have pushed back. There's fierce fighting going on still in the town called Bakhmut. If you look at pictures of it, it's completely destroyed. Um, and we expect a new Russian offensive Sometime in the spring, we don't know when it's going to be. Um, and therefore, you know, the Ukrainians have really been asking for more military assistance from the West. So now you have the Germans, after a long debate, saying that they will supply them with leopard tanks and other European countries that have these German tanks, which are top of the line, will also supply Ukraine. Uh, the Biden administration has said we will send Abrams tanks to Ukraine, but they may not get there till at least the end of this year. Um, so, And now, of course, the Ukrainians are, are asking for more fighter jets, so there's a big debate going on. So I think uh, at this point, the Ukrainians need all the military assistance they can get to push back against this new Russian offensive coming along sometime in the next few months. Uh, but this could go on, you know, for a very long time. There is no uh, sign at the moment that either side is ready to sit down and talk about a peace negotiation. I mean, it could be if you look at what's happened in Afghanistan and Vietnam, this could be 
something they're engaged in for years, if not decades. Um, is it risky with a leader like Putin? I mean, he seems like he has nothing to lose. He either wins or he dies. So there was the concern about escalation. And, of course, the minute the, the announcement was made about the tanks, the Russians threatened counter moves. On the other hand, what they're trying to do is just intimidate everybody, the Ukrainians and, uh, and all of their supporters, to doing nothing uh, so that Russia can continue this war and essentially change the government in Kiev, which they still want to do, and take over Ukraine. So I think we shouldn't allow ourselves to be too intimidated by Putin, but I think we have to recognize there are risks there, um, and we have to warn the Russians, as we're doing, of the consequences of escalating this uh, any further. Angela, do you have a sense of the level of support that Mr. Putin has within Russia itself of the people for this war? Sure. So the public opinion data that we have from the only independent uh, polling place is that um, about 70% of the people who are in Russia support this war. 50% of them uh, support it more enthusiastically. The other 20% may be less so. So the support is still there. Um, as many as a million Russians have left Russia, uh, including a couple of hundred thousand of young men who didn't want to be mobilized. So those people don't support the war, but the ones who remain there do, or they're indifferent to it. On the other hand, 50% of the Russians also say that there should be negotiations. But Putin has managed to persuade people, particularly those people who only have access to state-run media, that this is, you know, the United States is threatening Russia. This is a Russia, a war of Russia against the West, and Russia's going to defeat them. Angela, you know, we see stories of Putin letting inmates out of prison and putting them on the front lines. I mean, it, it looks like they're just, they have nothing left uh, how long can they continue to, to go here? Well, I mean, the Russians can still continue to go on uh, for some time. So the, the mercenary group Wagner, which isn't the regular Ministry of Defense troops, they've been recruiting prisoners, murderers, rapists, etc., and sending them to the front. And many of those people are getting killed. Uh, but you know, they still have quite a lot of people that they can mobilize. Um, they do have ammunition. They're getting stuff from the North Koreans, they're getting drones from the Iranians. So the Russians can continue going. They have a history of enduring uh, these things. And I think Putin's calculation is that in the end, the West will cave, that we, will, we won't have the enthusiasm anymore for supporting Ukraine, and that Russia will be able to prevail. Angela, I mean, I mean, we're speaking with Angela uh, Stent, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. Angela, you literally wrote the book on Mr. Putin entitled Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. And that won a Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy Prize for the best book on U.S.-Russian relations. So how you know Mr. Putin as well as anyone. How did he miscalculate so badly? So I think he was only being given information that his intelligence services knew he wanted to hear. So he was misinformed about the situation in Ukraine. He thought the Ukrainians wouldn't fight back. He was misinformed about the state of the Russian armed forces, which, of course, have performed much worse mm. than he thought they would. And he was misinformed about the West. He thought that the U.S. wouldn't react. He looked at what happened at the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, and I think he had two years 
of COVID isolation where he really didn't meet any foreign leaders. And, you know, he just talked to a small group of people who reinforced all of his ideas, all of his beliefs and paranoia. So it's been a huge miscalculation. Um, and I think it's just that he really wasn't given the information that he needed. I mean, you're also uh, a national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. You were uh, a member of the senior advisory panel for James Stravides, Admiral Stravides, the uh, Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, um, <clears throat> as well as others. What's your take on the relationship between Russia and especially Germany? You know, I lived in Berlin for the last five years. You, you've written a book about the West German relationship with Russia, with the Soviet Union before the fall. Um, Angela Merkel and the Germans decided to put all their eggs in Vladimir Putin's basket, even though the U.S. administration asked them time and time again to reconsider their reliance on that natural gas. Why do you think they did that? And, um, you know, what's what's the relationship going to look like now? So they had this strong belief for about 50 years that, you know, if you traded, if you had uh, better economic relations with, first of all, the Soviet Union and then post-Soviet Russia, if you imported their gas, that would somehow uh, translate into better political relationships, too. And in fact, you know, uh, 50 years ago, uh, the Germans used this kind of economic relationship incentives with the Soviet Union uh, because, you know, to try and improve the situation with the East Germans. So that was their belief. And then there's all of this historical baggage that comes with it, the, the feelings of responsibility and guilt for what happened in World War II. 27 million Soviet citizens died. But of course, those are Ukrainians as well as Russians. Um, and there was a lot of pressure from the business community on Angela Merkel, for instance, to continue these natural gas deals. Um, and I, they have finally woke up on February 24th of last year and realized that all of these assumptions were wrong. And that's why you had the speech from Chancellor Schultz just a couple of days right. after the invasion. Um, and I think German policy has changed. You can see that with the provision yep. of the tanks. But there's still a lot of debate in Germany about this. There's still a lot Amazing. of Germans, older Germans, who still think that Germany has this responsibility. Right toward Russia. All right, Angela, great stuff. We wish we had more time with you, but we'll certainly have you back as uh, the news warrants. Angela Stent, Senior Fellow of the Brookings Institute, giving us the latest on geopolitical issues. Matt, we're talking about the Fed. It's Fed Day. But you know what? You and I, we don't know anything. True. So sometimes we try to talk to smart people like Vince Signorella, because he talks to traders and things like that. And that is very, very helpful. But let's just go right to the horse's uh, Vince mouth. talked to traders about what they want the Fed to do. Yes. A lot. But let's talk maybe to more than what they think the Fed is actually going, going to, do. to do. But let's talk to somebody who actually does it, who actually is in the market. Uh, George, uh, joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio is Cat Trombone. Cat Trombone. Cat Trombone. Cat Trombone. Cat Trombone. He's a COO and head of America's trading at DWS Group. So, George, you're in the market. You're in the front lines. What are you hearing? What are your traders telling you? What are your clients telling you about what this Federal Reserve is going to do? Well, I think they need to speak hawkish today, quite frankly. There needs to be some sort of a power pushback because the broader market is, is not believing what the Fed is saying. Right. It's nuts, though, right? I mean, look at financial conditions. Easing. Your yeah. own financial conditions index, and there's a Love plug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yourself is, is go on the Bloomberg terminal. Boom. Yeah. Is actually showing easing. I mean, look at dollar weakness. Look yeah. at multiples extending towards 18 and beyond. 
so that those easing conditions Powell's going to need to push back against. I can't believe that the market is actually talking about our pricing in two rate cuts this year. And I think that that's, that has to be a concern. He talked. But you are the market. <laughs> I mean, I look at you and I'm, you are the market. You're out there, you're buying and selling all day on behalf of your, your clients. What do you think? You got a trillion dollars in assets under management that's at DWS. Lot, that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Yeah. That, that's more than like the lotto. Yeah, that's a lot of money. <laughs> what do you do? Like, so what do you think the Fed, what's the disconnect between the Fed, we're going to be hawkish, and the market that you trade in every day that's saying, eh, maybe some rate cuts. Momentum is hard to fight, is what it tells you. And it's also painful uh, staying in cash and watching the market begrudgingly participate. I mean, I think the early part of this year, especially in fixed income, there's not been the amount of new issuance that you've seen before. That's keeping or forcing spreads to sort of stay in there and get reinvested again. And I think that it's going to be a difficult uh, balancing act for the, for the Fed and for Powell, but this is not the time you know, to support easing. You talk about this at Jackson Hole, especially. And this is the moment he's going to have to lean in and have a backbone. You know what we haven't talked about for a, a while now? We're so focused on the terminal rate because the market is pricing less, far less than the Fed's um, dot plot shows. And like, like you said, the market's pricing in cuts in 2023. We haven't talked about QT for a long time. And it feels like there's already a liquidity issue out there. Is QT working? I mean, we do see inflation coming down. It, it's working, but at a at a... At a got to think of where you're coming from. What, eight or nine trillion, trillion is on the balance yeah. sheet itself. So it's working. It's working at a lag. They're not actively selling either. They're letting the balance sheet roll off. So until I see mortgages actually being sold, I, I think it, it continues to exist in the background. And maybe as financial conditions do get tighter, or at least we hope, or at least Powell hopes from here. How, how could they possibly get tighter? They're at a, a one-year, I guess high is the right word to put it. Uh, you know, they haven't been this loose in over 12 months. Correct. They're yeah. going to need to get higher. Otherwise, we're going to have a problem. And I'm not sure that the market is actually ready for that CPI to either plateau and or creep up a little bit. And I think that's when you start to get back to the narrative a few months ago about a terminal rate existing, you know, well into five, call it five and a half, or some economists even calling for six. And I think that that will be something to watch. By the way, we've already called out Basically, three Bloomberg functions, right? Fcon <laughs> Go, yep. WIRP, W-I-R-P Go, yeah. and then Fed Space Bal Go, which shows you the balance sheet. It's really oh, cool. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. What do you screen for? What do you look... When you get to work in the morning at DWS and you log in your and Bloomberg, he has a Bloomberg terminal, terminal... He has a Bloomberg terminal. Absolutely. What, every day. You have to. What do you, what do you look at? What's your dashboard look like? Well, I can export my jump pad to you, I think, or my launch pad, and you're welcome to take a look at it. But yeah, I mean, it's those, and it's it's a bunch of other functions around currency. I mean, the dollar weakness that you've seen recently is meaningful, and also adding to that weakness in financial conditions. And obviously, we're a global asset manager, so certainly where European markets are, it's crazy to see the FTSE not 100, not too far off of all-time highs. When you yep. think about where we were just six months ago, and potentially a cold winter and shortages and things alike, and now to see those equity markets up is is surprising. So we're up, trying to keep up and outperforming. I mean, the CAC yep. and the DAX are up nine percent. Uh, the IBEX in Madrid is up ten and a half percent. Those are Nasdaq numbers. Correct. Yeah. And you know, one wonders if there's that much more room to go there um, from here, but. You know, it's a long year, and I would definitely exercise patience. It does seem like everything that everyone forecasts to happen in 2023 has already happened by Feb 1st. <laughs> I think we're already at year-end targets. Yeah. So what do you think? I mean, these, this first month of the year, is, that a, is this a technical snapback in some of these asset classes, or is this the beginning of a, a turnaround? I mean, I've been again. wondering the same thing about equities, because we've seen, um, you know, tech 
We've seen consumer discretionary. We've seen telecoms. They've been the best performers. Meanwhile, the defensive uh, industries, utilities and uh, real estate, um, they've been the worst performers. So either this market has some real uh, bullish conviction or there's a lot of short covering going on from all the tax haven selling that happened at the end of last year. And you'd know a lot about that, right? Um, and then get back in this year. Um, I think it's a combination of, like you said, tax law selling, RSIs being incredibly stretched and technical levels being oversold. You look at any indicator, bull bear indices, you could name half a dozen. Everything was just incredibly bearish and negative. And you know, coming in this, this year to start, um, you know, you're seeing systematic CTA demand for sure. You're seeing short covering, a declining VIX, uh, lower than expected new issue activity and credit. And, all, and, and quite frankly, the move index or the rates index, there's another Bloomberg uh, function for you, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, easing quite a bit and also not helpful to the Fed, by the way. And you know, within that, that narrative, it is creating a, a good updraft here, and I believe very much on a technical basis. As you start, where are you going to go next in equities? 18x, 19x? And this is in a year where you know, earnings estimates, earnings growth are flat, quite frankly, from, from here out. And that's not even, you know, that's including energy. Take energy out, the picture gets much more bleak. So you're really paying a premium right now. So we have three more hours, right, <laughs> until the Fed. Yep. Um, let's wrap it up. What do you expect from Jerome Powell today? To walk a tightrope, but still to have to lean hawkish. Uh, if you're the Fed, this is not what you want to see right now um, at all in easing of financial conditions with more, uh, more, more room to go as far as disinflation. So they have more work to do. They cannot uh, afford to give, show any weakness right now. So what are your traders on your desk at DWS? You're down at 52nd Street, 3rd Avenue. Come visit us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you can come visit us because you're so close. What do they do on a day like today? They yeah, just, what are they they doing? just calm down until 2 o'clock? The positioning is light going into this, yeah. right? So you don't want to front run this too much because of you know, expected surprises or, or something that could come out of left field. So Get some more coffee, throw in a fat lip, and just <laughs> chill until two, right? It's almost as if you have cameras on our desks. That's exactly. <laughs> hey, you guys are our global firm, as you mentioned. 30 seconds. What do you mean? What, what do you take away from China reopening? How does that play into what you guys are looking at? Sure. Um, it's going to be net positive to both EM and global growth. And I'd expect uh, pent up demand, at least initially, to really come to the fore. So it is an opportunity. I think everyone's underweight this country. If you look back six months ago to what we were discussing earlier, everyone said get out. Right. So now you're seeing a, a kind of a rush back in. And um, I would just sort of be careful. The property sector is still an issue there as well. So you, you, want, to, you want to certainly consider it, but not push all in. Yep. All right. Good stuff. Uh, George, contrabone. Contrabone. <laughs> COO, that did pretty well in that. Catrambone. Catrambone. You just say it like it's spelled. Say it Cat like it's spelled. Catrambone. Yeah. COO and head of America's Trading at DWS, which stands for? Deutsche Wertpapierspezialisten. All right. It's the asset management business of Deutsche Bank. They got like almost a trillion dollars assets under management. George, it's just a few blocks away from us uh, here on Third Avenue in Midtown Manhattan. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. 
Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Here's a really, really interesting conversation. It's something, it's a topic I think about a lot, which is water. You think there's a lot of it around, but there really isn't. And so I love thinking about it, talking about the the concept of water the as an asset, a resource, and as a business opportunity. Alexander Lukopoulos, he is a partner at Science Water and Science Capital Management. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Alexander, talk to us about water. How do you guys look at water? What is it? What what are you what are you doing? Sir, well, thank you for having me. Great question, uh, and I get asked that all the time because water, in my view, is literally everywhere but nowhere. Right? You can talk about water from the drought, from too much water, too little water, to blue water, to green water, to yellow water. So. It's literally very confusing to make sense of it. Um, And on top of that, water fits into everything that we do, from the clothes we wear, to what we eat, to what we drink, to the fact that we're 70% water, we're surrounded by it. So um, the way we view water is uh, to be focused on it and to frankly be focused on it and try to actually solve some of the problems because when something seems to be so confusing, it's oftentimes very hard to actually solve it. And we currently know water is a big problem, certainly know water is a big problem in the US. So the way we view it is, let's focus on trying to solve some of the big water issues in the U.S. today, uh, starting with the infrastructure. How can you you do that as a, you want to make money at the same time, right? You're not um, a a, a charity or an NGO uh, in in the sense that you don't want to profit. How do you invest in a way that, I mean, you want to do good for the world, but you want to make money for your clients. Absolutely, and and I think that's what's uh, interesting about what we do is that we are uh, a the private sector needs to play a more important role in infrastructure, needs to play a more important role in industries like water that are very confusing for uh, for many shareholders to solve on their own. And I think private equity, in particular, and what we do actually brings a lot of that together, a lot of those different constituents, and actually is a very big problem solver. So we're able to make uh, strong returns for our investors, and at the same time have impact in a sector that is so desperately needed for that to happen. But what are the big businesses in that sector? Are we talking about waste management? Um, Are we talking about um, sewage? Are we talking about purification? What's... So in, in our case, we're, we're, we're talking a few of those. Number one is utilities. In the U.S., we have 85,000 plus utilities. Many of them are actually private and small, which many people don't understand, and it's a staggering statistic. In the U.K., as an example, you have close to 30. In most mm-hmm. of European countries, you have less than 100 in each of those countries. In the U.S., and I repeat, more than 85,000, most of which are private. So one of our um, strategies is rolling up small consolidated water systems and giving these individuals better, cleaner water 
at the right price. Um, and that is both profitable and impactful at the same time. So you're using One, scale to improve the businesses of this incredibly fragmented industry. Right, so fragmentation and scale uh, and operationally excellence across the board and impact. Um, All right, so as a so that's kind of like a business ownership framework market structure issue. Are there more fundamental, What what is kind of the fundamental water problem in the US? Don't have enough of it. Don't have it in the right places. So, great question, and that's not one you can answer because water is a very local issue, right? We li we sit here in New York City. We have one of the oldest water treatment plants. It's municipally run. It's probably got one of the largest tax bases in in the world for a water system. And people in New York get good clean water. The problem in New York, as an example, is delicious. The age, is the, it's delicious. Is the <laughs> aging infrastructure, right? The pipes. There's a pipe okay. that how many pipes have broken on Lex and 59th Street yep. in the last year, right? That causes disruption. The piping infrastructure is old and degraded. When you go and talk to our friends in LA, they have a very different issue. They don't have enough water because the water is not coming from Lake Mead and it's dropping every day. So the, the issues with water are very much local and made up of different markets. So it's oftentimes very hard to generalize, which again leads me to the thing, which is it's very hard to actually focus on problems. All right, let me ask a really dumb, as I've owned real estate in California for a long time, and you sit there and we talk about the drought every day. In my 20 some odd years, there's only been a couple of years when it hasn't been an official drought. Um, and you stand there and I look out at the ocean, I'm like, can't we, isn't there a solution there somewhere? Desalination is too Can hard you, and costly? It, well, desalination in, in the US and specifically in California is very costly. Uh, people have done it, they've tried to do it, but it's not desalination. I mean, the reality is recycled water. Um, in the US, we recycle close to 10% of our water. Um, many car many parts that need it desperately. Singapore, as an example, is toilet to tap, 100% recycled water. They recycle 100%. Israel, close to 90 plus toilet percent. Toilet to tap? To that, is, that is an expression that in Singapore is sort of wow. utilized. So recycling your water, um, maybe not for consumption sort of drinking, but for irrigation, for but other But why not? I mean, it sounds bad, yeah. but at the end of the day, you just need H2O, right? So you can pull that out of whatever you have. And you clean it, and you clean it better, and now with new technologies, they've been around for a while. This isn't a technology game. We don't need somebody to, you know, it's not like sending somebody to Mars here. These are solutions that have existed technologically. It's really putting the puzzle together, um, and this is a great example. In California, yes, you can look at the in desalination, didn't work, too expensive, you know, you need something that's more uh, meaningful. Recycle reuse is another one of those, which is why one of our other platforms is focusing on recycle reuse, mostly on the West Coast, where the issue is the degrading infrastructure. It's the lack of, of water, but recycle reuse helps solve that. When, when, you, when you look at a city like, I don't know, Phoenix, for example, Vegas, in the middle of a desert, does that frustrate you to see so much building infrastructure going into places where there is no water and it just makes the, maybe the, the 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 situation worse in general for the country. Shouldn't frustrate you. That's an opportunity for you, yeah, right? Maybe. You want to make money, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. At, at this point everything excites me in water because there's so many there's so many pockets of inefficiency. You you mentioned another one. So, when you look at something like Phoenix, that's why you need to upgrade systems. You need more infrastructure. You need better infrastructure. You need more digital infrastructure. You need more recycle reuse infrastructure. So, I think um, situations like that present opportunities and they present opportunities for people that can put the puzzle pieces together and again starting with your first conversation why are we as a private capital firm investing this is because we see our value add in being able to pull that all together it's mm -hmm. not going to be one technology that solves all the water issues it's not going to be one politician that waves a trillion dollars into it which they don't have nor would that even begin to solve it nor right. is it an academic engineer it's going to be a combination of all of the above and as a private participant 
what's exciting is to be able to bring all that together, but do it actionably at a local level so, in the US. So how has your performance been? I mean, you went to Georgetown, went to MIT, uh, then took that to JP Morgan, where you uh, learned M&A, the M&A business. Now you're putting it to use to make money. How have you done? So yeah, it was certainly not a straight line. Um, put it to good use because we started at Science Capital. We've been doing mid-market investing for a long time. Um, so we learned sort of how, how to work with middle market companies, of which in the water space, as we know, it's mostly middle market companies, okay. um, including the recent merger of the two of the largest players um, just last week. But it's made up of middle market players. So utilize that skill set plus the skill set of uh, real asset investing, where we invest sort of in between infrastructure and private equity, utilities, recycle, reuse plants. So utilize that framework to then apply it to one singular sector, which was water. And the interesting thing about water was it took us many years of research to begin right. to make actionable investments. And I think once you have a combination of all that, um, I think the opportunity set and the returns are Good. there because the market is so inefficient and fragmented and our value add becomes all recognized. Right. You're local. You're just a couple blocks away. That means we're getting this guy back because I got him a million more uh, questions yeah, here, uh, both on just kind of the water issue, how to make money, who your investors are, all that kind of good stuff. Alexander Lokopoulos, he's a partner at Science Water and Science Capital Management. Uh, talking about a topic that, you know, we don't talk about a lot, but uh, water issues in this country and on a global basis, really, really big issues going forward. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.